This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su. And traditional textiles can tell us a lot about the people and the culture behind it. And one such textile is the Pua Kumbu, which is handwoven and designed by Iban women. Um, however, like many other traditional knowledge and skills, you know, it's not something many people know about. And we want to um, learn more about it and here to share more um, about the Pua Kumbu and what stories textiles can tell us is Dr. Waylene Jeffrey Jehom, a senior lecturer at the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at University of Malaya. She's also the co-founder of the Rumagarepua Kumbu Community Project, um, and that involves Iban women coming from or living at Rumagare in Kapit, Sarawak, and helps them to develop the weaving of Pua Kumbu into um, a cottage industry. So thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Waylene. Thank you for inviting me. It's uh, my pleasure and I'm really interested to find out more about this. Um, but maybe first, you know, you can tell me a bit about yourself and your background. I mentioned a bit about it earlier. <laughs> okay, thank you, Suan. Um, I'm a Bidayu from Kuching, Sarawak and I am an anthropologist at the Department of Anthropology. Um, I've been, I joined UM since uh, 2009. I started first at Gender Studies and in 2016, I moved down to a Department of Anthropology anthropology which is just like one floor down of my previous uh, department I do a lot of community engagements and and basically that is the focus of my research and I I basically do a lot more work on site mm. and engage with uh, communities uh, especially when there is a call for uh, enhancement program or women empowerment project program so I separate that from my academic uh, tasks, you know. Mm-hmm. So some of the things that I do on site, it is it is not supposed to be translated into academic publications. Mm-hmm. So the other two things that I do as an anthropologist, engaging with the community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what um, inspired your interest in working with the the Iban women um, on the Pua Kumbu? You know, what was your first exposure to that like? Okay. Um, like everybody else, uh, when we see the Pua Kumbu for the first time, we always think that it is a table run, uh, runner. And we always think that it can be a decorative um, wall to do uh, interior uh, design, for example, for mm. house to make it look nice. But actually, that is more than that. So uh, that's what I learned about Pua Kumbu in the beginning before I actually uh, undertake this project, uh, this research. So what interests me is that uh, the more I dig into it, uh, the more complicated it seems, it sounds, you know, like, uh, I think if you have seen the design of the Pua Kumbu, it's very abstract. Mm-hmm. And somehow for the first timer, if you look at the Pua Kumbu, it seems like everything is similar because mm. there is like this uh, graphic um, designs and then the tools, okay, but it's all interconnected. Uh, but the more you want to have an expert eyes to look at it, the more more and more things you don't understand. So that actually captured my attention and I was really interested to know um, the name of the design, how it's made, uh, all the process and also what is the story behind all these designs. Uh, basically, that actually 
kind of attract me to get to know more about the Puakumbu and also at the time um uh, at University Malaya we has been asked to apply for high impact research grant mm-hmm. that was 2012 and I applied in 2013 so one of the branch of the research is heavily emphasized on um the conservations of traditional and indigenous knowledge which was why I took Pokumbu as as one of my priority for the research hmm. And maybe you could tell tell me a bit more about the Puakumbu. You said people often think it's a, a table runner, it's decorative, but what is the significance to the Iban people? Okay, it's good that you are asking about the significance because I think a lot of people are asking about what is the function of the Puakumbu mm. rather than the significance. Okay, so there are a few things, but I think one of the most important significance of the Pokemon to the Iban people is that it is representing their ethnic identity. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and for your information, in Sarawak, it is only the Iban who actually weave the Pokemon mm-hmm. and not other ethnic groups. I mean, we have about 22, 23, 24 different ethnic groups, but only the Iban is engaged in this kind of activities and it's very, very complicated. So, um, I will just tell you a little bit about what it is, uh, the Puakumbu and then how it's function um, within the Iban community. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, uh, the Iban Puakumbu basically is a, a kind of warp pattern ceremonial blanket, which is produced um, using the tie and dye uh, weaving technique. I think tie and dye weaving technique is much uh, known to people, but it's not just the tie and dye, but mm-hmm. the process before that. So partly due to its um, aesthetic value and also the spiritual mystery it offers, which I found out later in my research, uh, Pokemon is highly sought after by the both local and also foreign collectors, dealers, institutions and museums. Mm-hmm. And that basically added up to my curiosity, why it's such sought after, you know, and and the old Puakumbu, um, they call it the authentic Puakumbu. I will I will I will share with you why I, I use the word authentic in inverted commas. Mm-hmm. It's sold for thousands of US dollars. Wow. And 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 the old one is basically uh, residing in the British Museum uh, in England and then some other museums overseas. But we do also have the old ones uh, in the collections of uh, Borneo Cultural Museum, which is what it is called now. Mm-hmm. And also the, um, I think I think our National Museum in Kuala Lumpur also have a few pieces. Yeah. Okay. So basically, uh, the Puakumbu to expert eyes is the conversations of, and also uh, I call it as canvas mm-hmm. of documentations of Iban folklores, stories, legend and also their cosmology that includes the gods, deities and the spirits as well as the living things in the Iban world. Okay, You will not find in the old Kwakumbu that speak about normal human beings. It's all about the gods, deities, goddess and the living things that live around it. So that's the reason why uh, in Iban saying um, they always talk about the people from um, Nanga Pangao, okay. Nanga Pangao means uh, the upper world where the gods deities live. They don't really talk about death in the Puakumbu. Mm. Uh, it I have not find any any pieces or pieces that actually speak 
or documenting about the death in the Iban people. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, I I need to explain a little bit more. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, the Iban cosmology is basically um it closely linked to uh, a form of animism. Okay, which is widely embraced by the indigenous people in Borneo, and of course, it is also embraced by the Iban. So, it is a traditional religion that involves around uh, the belief of uh, an environment inhabited by various gods and spirits with supernatural powers. And also every part of the natural environment that is seen has a soul. Okay, So this is widely elaborated by Eric Jensen in his book, which is called Iban Religion. Uh, it was first published in 1974. Mm-hmm. Okay, So that's the reason why all these elements play a significant part in the designs that are woven into Pokemon. So this supernatural realm is basically comp- uh, consists of uh, two kinds of spirits. Yeah? The ghost spirits and the gods, the patara and the bad spirits, which is also called the antu. So in each piece of the Pokemon, you always have this kind of... Um, Supernatural being mm. and supernatural spirits. Yeah. Okay. So I I I will move on to how it started. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you ask about the significance of of this textile, yeah. Okay. So the descriptions of the significance of Wakumbu is basically, uh, it can be positioned in, uh, in relation to the folklore of of these. Uh, goddess, which is known as uh, Darati Jintamaga, and her husband Ketupo. Okay, so uh, as I mentioned, uh, Pokumbu served as a canvas of Isba, uh, of Iban cosmology, and it is basically the religion and animistic beliefs constructed skillfully by the weavers, knowledgeable women weavers who are actually guided by the supernatural beings communicated through the incidents in their dreams, in their visions, and also events. Okay, So that's the reason why also uh, Kumbu is always called as the dream textile mm-hmm. and the weavers are called as dream weavers. Okay, Because these are the elements uh, that are associated in, in the process of producing the Pokumbu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how it function? It is actually a protective blanket uh, during healing and also rituals in which many of the designs have been considered sacred mm-hmm. and only passed down within the family. So that's the reason why no weavers would allow you to place the Puakumu as a carpet. Mm. And a lot of foreign uh, people who want to buy this asking, can I use this as a carpet? I said, no, if you're going to use it as a carpet, I'm not going to sell it to you. You know? Mm. Okay. There's a long explanation of giving you. It's 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 something sacred to the community. Even if you are selling it, if, even if they are producing it for sale, you know they want to ensure that it's not being used. You know for other reasons that that okay. that is that it's not meant for, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, mm. yeah. All right, we do have to go for a quick break now. On the show with me today is Dr. Willin Jeffrey Jehom anthropologist and co-founder of the Rumagari Puakumbu Community Project, um, sharing more about what the Puakumbu is and its significance to the Iban community and how she works with the Master Weaver at Rumagari to keep the tradition alive. Don't go anywhere, we'll be right back for more from this conversation on BFM 89.9.
Welcome back to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su An. Joining me on the show today is Dr. Willin Jeffrey Jerholm, a senior lecturer at the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at University of Malaya. She's also the co-founder of the Rumagari Puakumbu Community Project, which involves um, Iban women coming from or living at Rumagari in Sarawak and working with them to keep the weaving tradition of the Puakumbu alive and going. Now, Willin, we often hear about traditional practices like weaving becoming a dying art, right? Was that the case with the Puakumbu when you first started working with the women at Rumagari? Yeah, actually, it is the case. In fact, um, I can't continue to answer that question if I don't tell you there's another link to that situation, mm-hmm. okay? Um, uh, the weaving of Puakumbu has always been known, like, exists in a few longhouses only. So mm-hmm. that's the reason why uh, Sarawak Society Atelier and also with uh, the Craft Council of Sarawak, they try as much as possible uh, to try to uh, promote it among the weavers. And sometimes not even among the Iban weavers uh, because it's such a precious art, you know. Mm. And it's a lifelong learning. So there is no such thing as you can learn to weave the puakumbu in three months or six months, you know. <laughs> it's a life learning. Mm. And and the weavers themselves, they actually uh, see themselves as uh, getting better and better by each level, by the kind of design they're allowed to weave. Okay, so there is mm. actually a social structure mm. uh, within the weavers, which has been considered as uh, ranking among the weavers by foreign scholars, but I refuse to use that word because mm-hmm. I do think that some weavers, even though they have lifelong learning, but if they are not that skillful and talented, they wouldn't be able to match up with younger weavers who learn later but can produce very beautiful pieces. What I mean by beautiful pieces is um, you can see the uh, uh, craft ships of that, you know, the weaving, the neatness, the tidiness, the, uh, how you call that, uh, straight geometrical lines and all those kind of things. And and most of all, uh, the weavers need to understand what they are actually weaving. So nowadays, there are weavers, yes. Uh, and when I first started in 2012 mm-hmm. uh, with my I only worked with seven weavers mm-hmm. in the longhouse. And in the other part of Sarawak, you hardly find weavers who are as skillful as these seven mm-hmm. experts. Okay, And then slowly, there are some other women who knows how to weave, but uh, they are quite reluctant because they feel that uh, their skill does not match with these other seven. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, that's when the project started, you know, to include everybody who are interested because it's a dying art. Mm-hmm. And and more and more and more weavers started to learn from the master weavers group who are in the seven. And at the end, we finally have an official uh, Pokemon weaving project. You know, that it is very, it was very organic. Mm-hmm. You know, like they... Uh, uh, they would inform their cousin, their sister, their auntie from the other longhouse to participate in the project. It was never structured mm. to be a project. Mm. It becomes a project organically and it was initiated by the women. Mm. I never initiated this project. I was just helping them to get uh, um, how to call threads and I tried to 
uh, do some publicity. I try to help them to find buyers. Mm. So that's my uh, role and contribution to the project. But it was really the core was that seven weavers. Yeah. Mm. Now, unfortunately, you did try to get um, some of the weavers involved in the conversation, but we couldn't yeah. because of uh, connectivity issues. But maybe you can tell tell me a bit about um, some of the weavers you work with, especially the master weaver, and and what their experience has been like. Oh yeah, I I I, I admire the master weaver very very much, and she was actually the first one who introduced me to the world of Puakombo. Mm. You know, it's uh, it's funny that. Um, we can actually read about her on the internet, but back in 2012, mm. I know she exists, but it was so hard to access her. Mm. You know, like, I think it was fated that we found each other. I, I was giving a, a seminar mm-hmm. at the uh, Textile Museum. And on the same day, I think two of the uh, participants in the seminar told me that the person I mentioned, uh, I mentioned her name, uh, Bangi Anna Umbo. She is actually the UNESCO... Uh, certified Puakumbu weaver mm-hmm. and also she is a living legend and of of an artisan and she is also our uh, national treasure of Puakumbu weaver okay so they told me that this person actually is selling some of the Puakumbu at Jalan Konle you know the craft market that huge craft market every year mm-hmm. so after after the seminar I rushed to go and see her because I, I have been looking for her like almost like the whole 2012. <laughs> and I met her sometimes in August 2013. Imagine how, how excited I was. So it was like um falling in love at first sight, you know. So <laughs> I, I I I like her instantly, you know. She's mm. a very gracious, graceful woman, has this a kind of royalty gesture, you know, the way she walked, the way she talked, and she's very soft-spoken. She smiled all the time. And I was asking her a lot of questions and she just explained everything to me. So I was saying, okay, if she's the master weaver and usually indigenous knowledge or this kind of art, um, the artisan usually will not be so exposed, you know, Mm Um, not wanting to share everything that she knows, but she's willing to share every sacred question that I ask her. Mm. And I was like, okay, there is a potential to uh, to develop something from this conversation. So then um, I think it was in October 2013 itself, I went with her to the uh, longhouse, her longhouse rumah gari, and I was staying for three weeks in my first dream. Yeah. Mm, wow. Yes. So she's I've I've never found an artisan quite like her. Okay, thanks to um uh, Edric Ong, who is also one of the first uh at the time he was not a fashion designer, but he is now. Um and at the time he was working with Sarawak Atelier Society. So he was the secretary for this organization. And basically, that was I think it was back in 1992. So they gave uh, the weavers in the longhouse to weave on silk the very first time on silk, wow. silk thread. So uh, according to the master weaver, uh, she was not given enough to produce a scarf, you know, because it was supposed to weave scarf for the uh, Muslim women to wear as a veil or something. Mm. She was the only one who submitted the assignment. So that's when she started 
to gain attention of important people and prominent people in the textile art industry. And one of the things that really uh, struck me is that, okay, this lady, this year, I think she is going to be at 78, at, I think she's going to be 82 years old in May. Wow. Okay, so she never go to school. She doesn't read. She doesn't uh, write. She only know how to say her IC number. She memorized phone numbers and she can count all these kind of things. But she is amazing. So there was one occasion. It was back in the 1980s, according to her. There was an exhibition of textile in the stadium where they actually hang all the textile and and her mother was supposed to join that because her mother is was actually the expert who can memorize all the names and stories the folklores the poems all behind it but she was sick so she asked the organizer to take bangi instead the master weaver now so they were skeptical then she really knows because she's young. Mm-hmm. At the time, she was only like about, uh, I think about 30 plus, almost 40. Yeah? So she's young. You are the master weaver. You have woven for UNESCO. And being, no, just take my daughter, she said. So she went there. Mm-hmm. All the names, everything was written on a piece of paper stuck to the uh, textile. But everybody knows that she can't read. Mm-hmm. She was telling accurately every name of the Pokumbu exhibitor, even cited the poems and explaining the meaning behind it. That was then she became the real uh, prize uh, for Pokumbu weaving, you know? So, mm-hmm. and then she started to work with uh, the other woman in the longhouse, uh, particularly her assistant. Uh, Nancy and Ngali. Okay, so I have been working with these two very closely with these two, mm-hmm. and also they started to recruit uh, the other weavers who so eagerly to learn from them. So basically, the project gave a platform for the other weavers to get to know and to learn much more from them because they basically have to supervise and to guide. Yeah, mm-hmm. because we do have like uh, customers and buyers demand. You know, so the quality has to be there. Yeah. Mm, mm. So the project is sort of helping these women bring, create a community, right? To keep the Puakumbu weaving tradition alive. Exactly, yes. Mm, yes. Mm. So how has the project and the weavers then modernised the Puakumbu for commercialization? Okay, it's a very tricky question. Mm. And I got in a lot of debate with... Uh, collectors who collect only the authentic original Pokumbu. Mm-hmm. Based on my research, okay, I I always um, refuse to accept what they are weaving now as not authentic. Mm-hmm. You know, I try to learn to weave the Pokumbu. It's so much harder than doing a PhD. I tell you. <laughs> and and the master weaver herself was telling me. Oh, I thought you have a PhD supposed to be the most difficult education to, to achieve, but you can't even weave or put this thread together. Okay, I managed to put the thread together up to the time when they actually count. Okay, so why I mentioned this? Because the counting system changed slightly uh, to their convenience. Okay, mm. they used to use this thing called um, 
It's very complicated to explain, but I will try to explain. So they have these nine stick methods, which they call, uh, they have to count nine sticks, okay? Mm -hmm. So now that they use that method, so it makes less work after the thread is removed from the frame, after they put the thread together. They used to only use like five or seven sticks. So that makes much more complicated. But... Uh, Indai Bangi, as I call her, I mean, Indai means uh, madam or mother, okay? So Indai Bangi has made it much simpler. Mm. After the thread to be taken out from the frame, the job is much simpler. So she actually upgraded uh, the, uh, how do you call it, the counting system. Mm. Okay? I, I don't call that modernized. It was just that she's being very clever, thinking about how difficult it is to arrange the thread once it's out from those five, seven stick frame, mm. you know? So that is one of the uh, uh, upskill that she has done uh, mm. to it. And then secondly, in the past, they actually use the dye and they soak it like for two weeks, three weeks in cold dye. They were using cold dye. Wow. Mm. And... And, and that's the reason why uh, the result from those days and nowadays is very different. But those days they use cold dye because they have much stronger thread, which they actually uh, planted on their own in the rice field. Okay, because at the time they were uh, planting like uh, hill rice. Mm. So between hill rice, they would plant this cotton um, um, uh, the smaller uh, species. I don't remember the name. Of, of a scientific name of the cotton. Anyway, so after they harvested rice, they will start to work on this cotton to make threads. And cotton in Iban is called taya. So they collect, they will heat the cotton, stringing and everything. And so all the process, they have to do it themselves. Mm. Okay. And there's no chemical involved. Okay. So that I think that's the reason why. Uh, the cotton can stay to be uh, soaked for two to three weeks to gain the colors. Yeah? yeah. Okay. And and basically, it doesn't fade. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of the old uh, old woven uh, textile, including mm -hmm. the one that I have, even though I hang it uh, against the sun, it doesn't fade as much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So since they have access to thread uh, that is coming from China and India, uh, they don't plant, and because also they don't plant hill rice anymore, so they don't do all this kind of farming thing. So they buy trade. And in fact, Mangi and her late mother, uh, they found a shortcut on how to get this color out much faster. Mm. So what they, um, they still do the cold process where the thread is immersed with the dye after they pound, they cut, you know, and mix with a few other ingredients, which is also coming from the other plants and trees. It's very organic. But they actually soak it inside the dye water, which is heated up, okay? Not boiled, but heated up. It's very hot, but it's not up to 100 degrees. So uh, that actually makes the color comes out more brilliantly and stick to the tray, yeah. 
and only then they will uh, continue with the other process. So if you call it modernization, I just think that it is the improvement of the mm. indigenous knowledge that they have based on experience. Mm. Yeah. It's making the process smoother and easier, yes, isn't it? exactly. And the wood they replace with uh, stainless steel rod, for example, because wood always cut the thread and stainless steel is mm. very smooth. Uh, so the weaving process itself is also much faster because they don't have to deal with the broken threads and put glue and put it back together. You know, like every every day, every second counts in the uh, process of producing uh, the puakumbu. Mm. How long does it take them to produce one puakumbu nowadays? Uh, yeah, these are very tricky questions because mm. it's based on design. Mm. Based on design. And also, it, uh, of course, it's based on... Uh, the length and also based on uh, the specific width. Mm-hmm. Okay, I give you an example. Each weaver, um, they come in different sizes. Okay, because they use backstrap loom, mm. so the length of their hands are not the same. Mm. So, um, some of them can produce three feet, for example, about one meter. Some of them can't produce about that much length. So. All the uh, step of the work basically uh, involve uh, in the counting of the numbers of days or weeks or months to produce one piece of pokumbu. However, um, based on our documentation, I asked the weaver to tell me how how long it will take her to produce uh, three feet width and by 24 feet. Mm-hmm. Okay, because you know why 24 feet? They cannot just do one piece. Each design of Pokumbu, they will do, uh, normally they will do three pieces, mm. not even two pieces. Okay. Um, because the length of the thread that they bought from the shop has been determined that way. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason why. And also, uh, it's very hard to produce one piece because then the thread is so so thin to work with mm. so they would rather do like three pieces so usually each piece will be about eight feet and poor kumbu is basically two by eight feet or sometimes it two and a half or three feet by eight feet mm. then you can call poor kumbu if it's less than that they usually call poor miat mm. miat means small okay so, um, because pua means blanket mm-hmm. and kumbu is meaning uh, to wrap yourself with the blanket. So if you just produce like one feet width and three feet length, you cannot go pua kumbu because you cannot wrap yourself with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the two by eight feet, which is three pieces after they cut it, normally between um, four to six months, if they really do it, but if they just do it part time, it can be up to nine months. Wow, it's the reason why uh, the production is very slow, and customers have to wait for like eight nine months mm. in order to get their order pieces, and that is also like uh, quite difficult for us to really commercialize Pokumbu. So what we did is like. We just ask them to weave and whatever they have, that is actually what we sell. Mm-hmm. Usually, if we take orders, we will inform that particular 
a customer to say, you will only get your pieces maybe with, between one to two years. Wow. Uh, you buy the one which is already woven. Yeah. Mm. It's it's really more about um keeping the tradition alive and then when you can sell it, you do commercialize it, but that's not the goal there, right? Yes, exactly. That is not really the goal there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's such an arduous process. I didn't imagine it would take so long, but that, but that makes sense because it's hand woven, right? Everything is done yes. by hand. Yes, and it involves a lot of different steps. Like for mm. example, um, uh, before the thread is even arrived to the back strap loom where they actually stretch it, you know, I I wish I can show you some videos so that you can mm. understand. Yeah, but uh, it it basically. Uh, involve the preparing of the threads first. You know, like if it comes in bundles, for example, they have to hang it and to, uh, how do you call it, separate each each thin tr- uh, thread. Wow. And if they use raw cotton, they actually have to uh, treat it first. And then sometimes treating uh, raw cotton will involve uh, rituals. And you cannot just do the ritual without any indication of visions and dreams to approve it, you know, so that takes a lot of times. So after that, they actually do the warping process where they actually like uh, put strain by strain uh, on the uh, on the frame. Okay, but this is not uh, uh, for weaving at all. Mm. This frame is actually uh, for counting, like how many threads to go into one state. Like for example, they usually have 20 uh, thin thread to put in one group, okay? And then it has something like they have to put it overlapping and in the middle, they call it tulang idol. It's, uh, it's the central of the counting because that is actually the place where they know that they can flip it in order to make it overlapping and that's when they started to uh, put on another frame mm-hmm. they will do the selecting and then they will fold after they fall on another frame they're going to tie according to the desired design only then they after that they will die but even the dying not just one time because if you want to have different level of tones and colors mm-hmm. so whatever you want to keep the color you don't take it out, but if you want to make it darker, they have to take every tying and tie the one that they do not want to be impacted by that particular color. So the process goes, in fact, to produce the design with different tone of colors can go up to five, six times. On the show with me today is Dr. Willine Jeffrey Jehung, anthropologist and co-founder of the Rumagari Puakumbu Community Project, talking to me more about um, the weavers that she worked with at Rumagari and the traditions behind the weaving of the Puakumbu. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back after a few messages on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su. And joining me on the show today is Dr. Willine Jeffrey Jehom, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at University of Malaya. She's also the co-founder of the Rumagari Puakumbu Community Project, where she works with the women at Rumagari, particularly with the master weaver, Bangi Anna Imbol, on keeping the tradition of weaving the Puakumbu alive. Um, now, Willine, I want to also ask you, right, you've worked with these women, you've worked with the master weaver for years. What have you 
also learned from that community of women throughout this project? Being resilient. You know, this is like a hard labor job. It's a backbreaking job. But um, looking at how how focused they are, how excited they are to start a new project, mm. to start a new weaving. You know, they would talk about like, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. And uh, this is how I interpret the story. So this is how I'm going to put it on my weaving. Okay. So that basically like uh, things that excite me every day when I go to the long house, you know, it's being resilient and also being communicative with each other because, um, Weaving the Pua Kumbu has to be one person job, but before it arrives on the weaving frame, it has to have to be a communal and also community work and it encourage solidarity among the weavers. So mm. that's what I learned. You know, like very seldom we have that kind of communal work, you know. Okay, people talk about teamwork, but within teamwork and corporate in research university, people always work individual, but they work under theme, not as teamwork. <laughs> That's what I learned. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Earlier you were talking about how the master viewer was so open about sharing this, right? Even though, you know, in, sometimes we do hear that indigenous communities are quite um, protective about their own cultures. I guess for you, perhaps on a more personal basis, I guess you, you, you are of uh, Bidayo descent. Did that pose challenges for you working with the women? Actually, yes. Um, from the very beginning, uh, the only person that really welcomed me into the community was the master weaver and her families. Mm. You know, she has uh, five children. The oldest, Gary Anaptimbang, uh, is currently the headman. So that kind of makes my entrance to the community a little bit easier. Mm. But um uh, because I'm a Bidayu, so sometimes uh, some of the stories or the communities is not being told fully. So mm. I'm kind of hanging here, hanging there. And also uh, the uh, the Longhouse people perception towards me is like, oh, she's, she's just another foreign researcher, you know. She's not one of us and all those kind of things. So uh, the Master Weaver... Um, because we are very close. Mm. So she basically announced to the Longhouse people and to her family that I am her adopted daughter. So that actually changed the uh, the vibe and changed the approach or perspective of me with uh, the community and mm. how they look at me. And I also speak the language. Mm. So I, I do feel that in this complicated research like this, you really have to understand and you really have to learn the language and speak the language. So despite me speaking Iban, but because I was speaking a different dialect from the other region. So the first two weeks they were laughing at me, saying that, oh, you Iban so terrible, you know. <laughs> da, da, da. I said, okay, just give me one or two weeks. You know, after two weeks, I was able to communicate with them in their dialect. Mm. And I said, okay, now try to speak Bidayu with me. Would you be able to? You know, so those are the kind of little, little things, little joke here and there that make us very close. Mm. And, 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 and that's when they started to feel more comfortable to speak about uh, their challenges in their livelihood and also their challenges in getting threats mm. and challenges to weave and also their financial challenges, for example. Uh, because weaving is just part time. If mm. they can sell it, there is, uh, there is another added financial. 
So that's the reason why why the project has been established. And um, I opened a shop at Amkop Mall in mm. in December 2017, you know, to help them to sell the pua. Um, because we had series of exhibitions, seminars, and talks, and and I also brought uh, a lot of people to go and visit them at the Longhouse, hoping to make them understand why each piece of wakumu is priced this way, mm-hmm. you know? So that shop was actually very successful. Uh, a lot of the pieces sold out even before uh, the next batch uh, is ready. So mm-hmm. I have I had difficulties to maintain the level of stock in my mm, shop. Because you say uh, it takes so long for them to produce. Yes, yes, exactly. So I was trying to diversify to... Okay, I said, okay, some of the bad quality ones that you keep in your cupboard, you do not want to sell. Can we just cut it accordingly? But you need to advise me how to cut, where to cut, uh, so that it doesn't lose the meaning. Mm. So all the... Rough one, uh, I, I turn it into like handbags, clutch, you know, uh, because if you buy the whole piece, it, it doesn't look nice. But mm-hmm. even you cut it like that, it looks so beautiful. And, and, and we started to do all those kind of things as well. And they started to weave like a, a bookmark. Mm. Okay. So they teach the younger ones by starting to ask them to weave and prepare bookmarks, mm. which is a very good step. You know, like the 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old. So they started to produce bookmarks and we sold it like uh, tending it. And people said, why this bookmark is so expensive? I said, okay, sit here. I'm going to show you the video, how they produce it, how these children actually weave this. You know, so everything comes with evidence. Mm. And selling pokumbu is not easy, Mm. uh, especially to the locals. They said, this is local product. Why are you selling so expensive? You know, like uh, even products from Italy and Paris is not bearing this kind of price. So I said, okay, um, because we had exhibitions uh, in 2015 and 2016, 2017. So I have all the videos that I prepared for educational exhibitions. Like it was in Georgetown Festival Mm -hmm. and also it was in the uh, Rainforest Fringe back in 2017. But I have this uh, single solo exhibition in 2016 at University of Malaya where a lot of people come, thousands. So those videos I put up in a shop. Okay, people would stop outside the shop and watch, you know. And the next week you will see that they're coming to ask for the products to buy. So there needs to be a lot of strategy to market the Puakumu. It's very, very complicated, but it's such beautiful art that... Uh, we really spend a lot of time to try to create awareness and educate people so that they can appreciate our own local product. Mm. Yeah. Mm. What would be your takeaway message then, Willin, to people who are listening about appreciating and understanding these local traditions? I I I just want to tell anyone who listen or who 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 saw Puakumu, um, there are a lot of write-ups, videos, on YouTube especially. Now visual, you can really see. Mm. Um, go and do a little bit more research, especially from uh, um, local speakers. I think all of my seminars are on YouTube. I even have this um, masterclass on understanding the Puakumbu on YouTube. All you have to put is Puakumbu Rumagari or type my name, everything will come out. So it's good to have this knowledge 
before you go and buy because now there's a lot of chemical dye used because our pokumbu is actually from natural dye. Mm. The terroots of mangkudu. If you know mangkudu, okay. So most of the time people will drink juice from the fruit, but for the red brilliant color is actually from the roots of the mangkudu. And we have the yellow color from a plant locally known as akar penawar landa. Okay. Uh, and then we have another one, uh, uh, daun tarum, which produced the blue color. So it's all natural dye. But now, because not many people know how to do this authentic puakumbu, mm -hmm. most of them will just use chemical dye. And, after, and chemical dye, if it's not treated properly, after one wash, everything will be gone and it will stain on your shirts and everything. And also uh, try not to be fooled by the shopkeepers uh, saying that, okay, this is authentic, this is old, this is very good and trying to sell to you like six, seven, eight thousand ringgit. Yeah, so just seek some professional advice, for example, if you really want to collect some good ones. Mm. That's my advice. All right, thank you so much for such an insightful conversation today, Willine. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me. I've been speaking to Dr. Willine Jeffrey Jerhom, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at University Malaya. She's also the co-founder of the Rumagari Puakumbu Community Project and sharing more about the work that the women at the Iban women at Rumagari do in keeping the weaving tradition of the Puakumbu alive. If you missed any part of today's show or any previous Live and Learn episodes, you can download our podcast on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suan and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.